This is Channel 253. In this episode of Crossing Division. Everyone talks about systemic racism. Well, right. systemic racism, it, it's, it's built into the system. So how do you fight that? It's not about awareness. It's about fixing the system. And what, what are ways to fix the system? You change policies and practices and procedures and the system. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Hi, this is Evelyn Lopez. Today on Crossing Division, we are really fortunate to have a couple of guests with us to talk about health equity issues. And let me just say, if you see the pictures from this podcast, you will be astonished to see that we are back in the studio. We're not. We're back in today, especially because we have a film crew who's also been doing some filming of Dr. Chen. Dr. Chen is one of our guests today. Dr. Chen, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you, Evelyn. I'm um, Dr. Anthony Chen. I'm Director of Health of the Tacoma Pierce County Health Department. Thank you. And we also have Gabe Moali'i. Gabe, could you introduce yourself? Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm Gabe Moali'i. I also am at the health department. I, In my current role, I'm helping our vaccine equity strategy. Wonderful. Wonderful. So we had this opportunity to talk with you both, and we thought we it would be a great opportunity to talk about health equity in Tacoma Pierce County. And then we can talk a little bit about how things have changed and how they're going given the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, before I start, let me tell you this. I went over both our uh, Tacoma Pierce County health equity report mm-hmm. that your office put out a couple of years ago. Uh, and also the COVID-19 health equity report. And for anyone who's listening to this, go check these documents out. Even if you just want to read the executive summary, they are excellent. Really good information, straightforward, plain talk, really excellent work. So I highly recommend those. And you can find those on the TPCHD website. But Dr. Chen, tell me a little bit about health equity issues and why this became a focus for Tacoma Pierce County Health. Well, you know, um, health is very complex. And a lot of times when we talk to people about health, it's like, oh, what's your medical health? Mm-hmm. Like, do, do you take pills? Do you, you know, family history of anything? Are you getting your mammogram? You know, things like that. And that that's kind of physical health, right? And, you know, of course, a step beyond that is for us to think about um, emotional health and social health, right? So... For example, if you think about a lot of conversation now about schools and what's going on with our kids and not being able to be in person, that's not only their educational knowledge, but it's also their social needs, their emotional needs, right? So health is a bigger thing. For us in public health, we also look at population health, right? So it's not your health and my health per se, but it is the health of the 905,000 people in Pierce County. So when you talk about individual health, there's certain things that put your health at risk, right? So if you've got a bad family history of something, or, or maybe uh, it, it doesn't have to be genetic, right? L- let's say you grew up in a family that was alcoholic, right? So a social environment, right? You know, that may, has a huge impact on you. Um, 
However, on a population level, we know that genetics don't play a, a very big role. Hmm. And certainly, um, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the health equity report uh, because in there is a little graphic that shows you know what produces health. And healthcare, which is hugely expensive. I mean, in the United States, we spend ten thousand dollars a year per person on healthcare, but that contributes about twenty percent to population health. Okay. And a lot of people ask me, like, you know, why is the health department always talking about exercise and smoking? Well, health behaviors such as exercise, smoking, drug use, you know. Drinking mm-hmm. alcohol contribute another twenty percent. So, wh- wh- what causes the rest of your health? Well, these are social, economic, environmental conditions. Mm-hmm. Right? So, we know, for example, income has a very close correlation to health. We're sitting here in the North End, right? right? So, the North End is better to do. Um, it's also more educated. Education is also correlated, right, to health. Um, so, so whether you've got a roof over your head, whether you have a job, and especially you know, and how much you get paid in your job, uh, whether you've been educated, and then there are also physical environment issues, right? So, you know, what you know, in the North End, you got a little bit cleaner air because you're not really around any highways unless you're next to 705 or you know, Ruston right. Way. But then, you know, there are other parts of our community. I mean, Marty Campbell used to always say, well, you know. People talk about the other side of tracks. Well, his district, east side, is the other side of the highway. Yes. Right? And then the people who have to live next to the highway, they get a lot of noise, pollution, whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's where we get really concerned because that's 55% of health there. Mm-hmm. And it's not what multicare Franciscans and the doctors are doing. It's not what the health department's doing. These are things that we need to really work with the community to address. Yeah. So your first step in sort of getting a handle on what's going on is to do assessment-type activities. Mm -hmm. And when did you start doing that? Well, you know, public health, as you said, one of our core functions is to do assessment. And we've known about this for years. I mean, people now are more familiar with a term called social determinants of health. It's kind of a fancy public health-type word. We've known about this for years. What it has been more is, uh, I mean, my staff know I'm an action person. And, mm-hmm. and I'm always saying, you know, knowledge doesn't change behavior. It doesn't change anything. It's what we do with that knowledge and how we motivate people to change. And so, you know, when I came 13 years ago, we ha- and the health department already had been talking about these issues for a while. I mean, yeah. people have known this for a long time. And it really was a shift for us to say, well, first of all, we need to educate a bit, but what are the key strategies we have, right? So so even the reports you mentioned, that's part of the strategy. I, I mean, it amazes me now, like I, I remember um, there was a candidate forum for city council, I think two elections ago, and mm-hmm. was, when we still had those events, you know, every year they do a PLU and, you know, city club sponsors them. And I knew several of the candidates. And then there's a candidate I, I personally had, didn't know her. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're in Q&A. And all of a sudden she says, well, you know, the health department has these maps that show that people who live in these neighborhoods live a lot longer than others, right? That was part of the intention. Mm-hmm. We need everyone talking about it. It's not some esoteric thing the health department's working on. 
this is everyone's problem. And, and as I remember what I said, this 55% is not stuff we control. Right. It's stuff we need to work with the community, you know, whether it's people who live in the community, businesses, local governments, you know, nonprofits, whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, so, um, you know, we've really been working on um, our strategies on how to move um, health forward and health equity forward. Okay. Well, let me ask you about that. And I'll, I'll say, putting this in a bigger context for me, one of the things that I've realized is that your health and sort of a general good health, it has enormous economic repercussions for a family. Mm-hmm. So if you are lucky enough to be healthy, you don't have some terrible health emergency happening to you, you are much better off than someone who has uh, the expense of and the emotional expense of cancer or long-term uh, disability or other things going on. And so, you know, as a um, city and as a county, there's sort of multiple benefits for making sure that our population is as healthy as they can be. And even if that means it's still different, it's still, if everyone's a little better, will benefit all of us. So mm-hmm. tell me some of the things that you've actually identified as strategies, things that you can do that have real results. So specifically around health equity, we have two main strategies. There are a lot of the other things we're doing where we're making sure we're tweaking them so mm-hmm. that there's an equity component, okay? And so um, that actually reflects one of our two strategies. One of our two strategies is called health in all policies. So um, if you look at a lot of our COVID response now, when it became very obvious at the beginning, I mean, we it didn't take us very long to realize that certain racial ethnic groups were getting sick more, right? Mm-hmm. So blacks, American Indians, Latinos were getting COVID-19 at more than twice the rate than the white population. Pacific Islanders astoundingly are four times the rate of mm-hmm. Yeah, and this varies by county. So like Yakima, our mm-hmm. neighbor to the east, they have a much larger Latino population. They also have a lot of service, you know, food processing and other things. Their Latino rates actually much higher than two times. But, you know, it it's allowed us to tweak, like even how we do our testing, how we do our vaccination, how we do our communications, right? So that's part of that concept of health and all policies, that everything we do has a potential health impact. And then also, I mean, you, you may be aware that, you know, our Board of Health declared uh, racism a public health crisis. So as part of our health and all policies approach, we are examining, right, everyone talks about systemic racism. Well, right. systemic racism, it, it's, it's built into the system. So how do you fight that? It's not about awareness. It's about fixing the system. And what, what are ways to fix the system? You change policies and practices and procedures and the system, right? Mm-hmm. So... That, that is one of the strategies that we're using. Um, and so, for example, the Board of Health and the City of Tacoma adopted a health in all policies approach. So just as, uh, you, know, it, uh, you, you know, kind of a humorous observation, right? I mean, it shows you how capitalist our society is, which is every bill, every ordinance has a fiscal note. Mm-hmm. They don't have a health note. Right. right. So the health in all policies policy that was adopted applies a health lens analysis. In, in, in Tacoma, they call it a health and equity lens analysis tool, just as the reason why um, the, the 
elected officials want to see the fiscal impact is they want to know what's the return on investment for them, right? Or mm-hmm. what's the cost to them? Well, there's all, there also can be health and equity costs, right? So you, you may, for example, want to change a road to, to increase traffic flow. Well, that could also impact whether people can cross the road or not, mm-hmm. right? Or maybe you create a rich-sided street and a poor-sided street. Or maybe that's not the best road to improve. Or, or what are you going to do with the bicycles once you widen the road? You know, so there's a lot of impact on what we do. And so that's one of the key strategies that we use is the mm-hmm. health and all, uh, all policies approach. Have you, has that been expanded to the Port of Tacoma and some of the, um, you know, I'm thinking some of our environmental development issues out at the port and the tide flats have um, you know, some real um, significant pollution potential. Mm -hmm. uh, Do they look at health impacts too, or are they not quite there yet? So this shows up in various ways, right? Everyone's supposed to do this um, environmental impact statement. Right. Um, If you remember, there was that whole issue, well, there were two things that happened, right? There was the methanol plant, and Mm -hmm. then there's the LNG plant. And the methanol plant came first. And our board at that time passed the uh, resolution calling on the city and the county and, you know, other places to say, if you've got a significant project, one of the things you might want to consider is a health impact assessment. So the EIS tends to focus much more on physical things, you know, traffic, um, pollution from oil runoff and, you know, things like that. Health impact assessment expands that and also includes a lot of community engagement. And it can be a small analysis or it can be... Um, we did one with Puyallup and South Hill, and I think that took about a year, you know, the community engagement on that. So so the tools are there. Mm-hmm. Um, we would love to work more with the, the, the port. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the port is looking at various things because, you know, um, they have, I mean, first of all, you know, the Theophos is a super fun <laughs> cleanup right. site, so they've right. done a lot there. And um, certainly, you know, like the Puget Sound Partnership, they're looking at environmental things like that. Um, they've, in terms of clean air, right? I mean, they plug in some of their ships now. And, mm-hmm. and this is kind of where you get into that kind of argument now about is LNG a bridge or is it still a fossil fuel, right? right. But, but you know, it's they're trying. Now, do mm-hmm. people agree with all the strategies? I think that's different. Mm-hmm. Where the health... Uh, impact analysis and health lens analysis would, would be to expand that. Yeah. And, you know, we are involved in a lot of other things. I mean, one of the areas that we've had a big investment in is um, transportation and growth management. Hmm. So speaking of the port, where do the people who work at the port live? Mm-hmm. They don't live at the port. Right. They certainly don't live in Northeast Tacoma, which is a different demographic, right? They might live in Fife, but most of them don't. Uh, they drive. Mm-hmm. And buses don't really run there. And so there's impact in that, right? Um, you know, here, historically in the U.S., we've not looked at, like, whether we allow worker housing, mm-hmm. you know, and... I know that's had a long history, you know, like sometimes in like in the South in the textile mills, they have sometimes they had positive and negative consequences. But countries like China, they build housing on their factory grounds and people just have to walk downstairs and walk into the factory. They're not wasting an hour commuting to work. 
Now, on the other hand, is that the best place to live? That's a different question. Right. But, but anyway, so we we are engaged with our, you know, pretty much all the planners in all the municipalities in Pierce County. They, they're they're very supportive of the work we do in this. Um, okay. The the mayors are too. I think the mayors might see it as. I want to improve my downtown, right? Mm-hmm. But a lot of the planning things we do now are dismantling the problems we created. It used to be people walked on Main Street. Mm-hmm. Well, then Main Street became a thoroughfare, right? People are cruising through Main Street to get to the mall or mm-hmm. to the Costco, right? So, so all this traffic calming, you know, protecting the seniors and so they don't get hit by cars buzzing by at 40 miles an hour, you know, all that. Mayors get that. Mm-hmm. That is part of health and all policies. That when we recreate our transportation system, our growth system, right? You know, you, you know all these catchphrases now: mixed-use developments. Well, why do we do mixed-use developments? Because that's how you support the businesses, right? I mean, people are so used to driving out to the malls or, or, or to the Costco's that they live downtown and they drive out there. Right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if we start building housing with mixed-use development, that supports, you know, people will go downstairs and go to the coffee shop. They will go downstairs, go to the laundry, you know, the mm-hmm. laundromat or the dry cleaners or a restaurant, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So we've actually been very involved in that okay. um, because there's so many health impacts on uh, uh, through the transportation growth management planning. Yeah, that makes sense. So let me take you now, so we you have done a lot of work on the health equity uh, issues, getting an idea of, you know, how to integrate health considerations into all of the policymaking. Then we get a pandemic, mm-hmm. and suddenly all of this effort is sort of, I would say, squeezed into what do you do today, right now, to help with this situation? How did things change in terms of your equity analysis when the COVID-19 pandemic started? Well, I think just like for everyone else, when the pandemic hit, we dropped everything, mm-hmm. right? And, um, you know, we have about 300 employees, and there were times we had like 120 of them activated for the response, which means there were 120 people not doing their normal work. Mm-hmm. And you can hold your breath for a certain period of time, and then you have to start figuring out what you're going to do and you have to prioritize. But as I mentioned, it became very clear to us there were inequities and disparities in what we're seeing with COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And I may mention the racial ethnic, but there's right. also age. I mean, you know, over 95% of people who die have a chronic condition, and that includes obesity, right? Mm-hmm. So, so um, and, you know, that's medical comorbidities. And then when you look at who died, right? I mean, the, the, the greatest number of cases are like in the 20 to 30-year-olds, okay? Mm-hmm. However, right. when you look at who gets really sick, it's the older age groups, mm-hmm. right? So, um, and then now with the t- um, vaccination, we know people with disabilities, people who don't speak English, you know, people who who live in parts of our county without internet, they have difficulty accessing. So, it, what it ha- um, COVID nineteen has laid bare all the disparities and e- inequities that were there. They mm-hmm. didn't create them; they were there already. They've just brought it, you know. They've just magnified it. And so we figured out very quickly we had to go back to what we were doing before. Um, and so that's some of the work that Gabe's been doing. And, mm-hmm. and Gabe actually can speak a lot to like 
our second strategy. Remember what I said about we had two strategies, one's yeah. health and all. The second strategy was a community-based strategy. It has this fancy name called uh, you know, multi-sectoral community collaboration, right? But mm-hmm. um, So uh, this might okay. be a good time for Gabe to describe what she did before and what she, she and her um, you know, our other, one of our other employees, Victor Rodriguez, is doing with the Equity Action Network. Perfect. Because, Gabe, you, uh, jump in here and, and tell me about this. One of the things I noticed in the COVID-19 equity report was that you, you were getting some really dramatic information, especially from community listening sessions. So I'm pretty interested in sort of how, how did you see this whole process working? Yeah, so... Um, the kind of going back to Dr. Chen's point of, of, you know, when you see inequities, it's, it's sometimes hard for people to see systems. They see individuals or behaviors. And so part of what we do with our data is showing patterns and helping highlight voices that people might not otherwise hear. And we knew that was super critical to begin with in COVID, our COVID response, because we needed to highlight the voices of those most impacted and then use that to really center our response. And pre-COVID, kind of going back to where we were working on with our equity strategies, is we had our health and all policy strategies, strategy, and we also had something that was pretty connected called our communities of focus. And this came out directly from our 2015 health equity assessment, where we looked at geographies and neighborhoods throughout our county that had some of the, the most barriers to living a healthy life. And we took our data paired with what we worked with our communities to identify what communities thought of as priorities. So through more listening sessions directly in communities, we learned, you know, what do the communities care about? And then our four strategies that we really developed were partnerships, kind of going back to this, you know, for example, if housing was identified, well, we don't, we don't need housing. That's a countywide um, issue. So how do we bring partners together on housing or what is specifically the public health role in housing? Um, then we also looked at investments. So how do we bring investments to the community and how do we center community in budget decisions? And this is also where you might have heard of our one of our processes, participatory processes called participatory budgeting. So this is a, a direct way to give community decision making in real budget decisions. Um, And then we also looked at our customer service. So who are we serving and who are we not serving? And what are the patterns in that? And how do we um, really address equity? And that's also really connected to, you know, our policy work and our health and all policy analysis. Mm -hmm. So did you have to tweak any of that to sort of, you know, um, shape it to make it work better for COVID um, responses? Yeah. So what that did is actually, so I was one of the first people activated in our COVID response, like, you know, pre-pandemic. And one of the reasons why is because we'd done this health equity work to really work deeply in our communities. And we knew that when COVID was, we knew that there was going to be, you know, just like the inequities that existed before, we, we, we kind of had a sense that these really needed to pay attention to, to what inequities were going to happen throughout COVID. Because we know when, whenever there's an emergency, you know, emergencies can just widen the gap in inequities. Um, and so we, the first people that were activated in our, you know, community outreach response were connected to our equity work already. And so they already had trusted relationships in the community. They already knew what community priorities were. Um, and that 
led to us creating Outer Equity Action Network, which was really focused on making sure we had equitable access to COVID-19 information in ways that our communities could understand, that they could engage with, and they could shape. Um, and so that's been really a foundation work for our continued um, work in, in our response. What did you find, you know, now that you're sort of in the COVID, you know, sort of, I don't know, pressure chamber, what did you find in sort of the reality of dealing with this uh, pandemic, especially with the equity issues, that was a surprise or, or different from what you might have expected pre-pandemic? I think some of the things that, I don't know if it was necessarily a surprise, but I think it became more urgent that just how systems operate in our community, that like things that were not as obvious became apparently obvious. We were, we were able to see, you know, huge gaps and disparities with things like who's disproportionately impacted in COVID, who's disproportionately impacted by access to vaccination. Whereas, you know, before maybe people couldn't see those patterns, now it's it's a lot more obvious and a lot more urgent. It's also a lot more critical to our recovery. I think a lot of people agree that, you know, if we're gonna improve our community health, we really need to focus on equity because we need to focus on the gaps in health. That's the only way that we can, um, that's the only way we can recover as a community is if we focus on equity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, let's take sort of, we've been through a year of COVID. It's been, you know, quite a year. Now we're sort of into the, I would say, hopefully we're transitioning into a post-pandemic lifestyle through the vaccine process. What are you seeing now in vaccines that is sort of, you know, either causing you to pay special attention or um, you know the equity issues are sort of, sort of requiring you to put... Um, more, um, I don't know, more services in certain places or changing how you would normally deliver these services? You know, what are you seeing now in the vaccine stage that is, um, you know, sort of plays into your information on equities? So some of this is obvious, right? And then some of it is kind of a shift in our discipline. And I think some of the obvious ones are, well, sure, if someone doesn't understand the language, then they're less likely to know wh where a vaccination clinic is and so on. And so, you know, the work of Gabe and some of our other staff and talking to the communities um, was important for them to say, hey, can you like, well, let's start with the testing sites, mm -hmm. right? Okay. We, first of all, give us information that we can share with our community. Second of all, make sure you translate that. No sweat. That's easy, right? We know how to do that. Then it was like, well, you need people who look like us and talk like us at your testing sites, mm -hmm. right? It's like, oh, okay, didn't quite think of that, but that one's relatively easy. But, but then, of course, we had to figure out, like, how do we compensate these people, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, as government, there are all kinds of rules about can we give fund, you know, no gift to public funds. And typically we have to execute contracts, but for a community volunteer who's going to come, you know, once a week, how it, can you really set up a contract? So we actually had to change some of how we handle that. Mm -hmm. um, but then it also became clear it wasn't just the racial ethnic components, right? So I mentioned earlier, the elderly, we kept hearing from people, boy, vaccine's so tight. And, and it used to be, we would 
announce it's open for registration, and in 15, 20 minutes, they're gone. Right. And even people who are pretty computer savvy were frustrated because by the time you type in your name and all your information mm-hmm. and you hit this send button, your spot may have gone, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've had to really think about how we approach it. How do we get the information out? How do we support the community, right? And, and it's not just racial ethnic. It's age. It's disability. It's which part of the county you live in. The intentionality also was, you know, coming back to the maps, it's like we're always collecting data and we're trying to, you know, as Gabe said, we're trying to see patterns in the data, both in the number data as well as in the what we call qualitative or what people are telling us. And so we're, we're intentionally trying to use that information to guide, like, where do we physically put these locations? How do we set them up? Are there ways that we you know, try to be trauma-informed so that we you know, don't create situations where people are afraid to come? Mm-hmm. Um, Gabe, anything that I missed in that? Yeah, um, kind of going back to the access issue of vaccines, and that's just key right now. We know that people like getting information from those that are, that are in their communities, that those that look like them, that those are trusted. So our role is one, making sure those trusted messengers have the right information, that it's accurate, that it's um, helpful information, and then making it easy for people to get a vaccine. I mean, that's key for behavior. So we're, we're continually looking at how to make it easier for people to access vaccines. So whether that's placing a site in their community, like Dr. Chen mentioned, whether that's looking at you know, do we need to provide vaccines in their homes? Do we need to go to where they are? Do we need to go where they already, you know, visit? So now with a lot more vaccine coming online, we're looking at, well, not just people coming to our events, but are there events that people are hosting that we can provide vaccine at? So we're continually looking at, you know, how do we make vaccine the the easy choice? How do we make it accessible? And how do we really, again, center those that have the most access issues to vaccine and the most disproportionate impacts uh, of COVID? Okay. Let me stop you there. Uh, Talking about vaccines, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, I've got some specific sort of access problems that I want to ask you both about. Okay? We'll break here. This is Doug Mackey, producer at Channel 253 and proud Alaska Airlines frequent flyer. What are you excited about in 2021? For me, it's travel. Doesn't that sound amazing right now? I spent most of 2020 looking at the same four walls in my studio, so I'm more excited than ever to get out and see the world. I want to sit in a coffee shop in some new city and read a book, or visit a museum, or visit archaeological sites like Tikal in Mexico. Ugh, it feels so good to think of these things. I know there's a lot to get through before some of that will happen. But where last year it was hard to think more than a week in advance, I have the confidence to actually start planning some vacations now. And that's where Alaska Airlines comes in. I'm not going to the travel sites. I go directly to alaskaair.com and book my travel because I want great customer service and direct flights to my favorite destinations. I also trust Alaska to keep me safe during travel right now. Their standards for social distancing and reduced touch travel are incredibly high. So if you're excited as I am about getting out to see the country, or you have to travel for essential work right now, start with Alaska. Do what I do and skip the travel sites and visit alaskaair.com to book your next flight. 
Thank you, Alaska Airlines, for taking me where I want to go in 2021, and thank you for your support of Channel 253. We're back. I am so delighted to still be talking with Dr. Anthony Chen and to Gabe Moala'i. Um, we are talking about COVID-19 vaccines. Before we get back into the nitty-gritty, let me just say, if you are not already a member of Channel 253, this is the type of programming that we provide, and we hope you will join us. It's $4 a month or $40 a year, and we uh, put these wonderful podcasts together, and we also have a few member privileges, such as the very interesting Insider Podcast Off the Record, and our member Slack channel that has some of the best discussions in town. So I hope you'll join us. All right, Gabe and Dr. Chen, vaccines. So number one, what if I am older, I don't have a computer, I don't have any way to get online or have online access, how can I get a vaccine? Gabe, you want to take that one? Sure. I... Well, take that one. That is one of our number one access issues. I can't get on a computer. I don't know where to find a vaccine. I can't sit at my computer. One of the things we've done is stood up a call center at the health department. So I um, will get you that phone number, but what people can do is they can call our uh, health department phone number. It's uh, through 830 to 4. People can um, access that number in multiple languages. We have people that are ready to help you find an appointment and walk you through registration. Perfect. Okay. It's 253-649-1412, available seven days a week, 7 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Excellent. Thank you. Okay. Challenge number two. Homeless populations, um, especially those who are living directly on the streets in tents. How do you get to them? How do you do outreach and how can they get vaccines? In our team, we have people that are specifically focused on our um, homeless population, those experiencing homelessness on underhoused people. They're working with directly with service providers and we're, we're looking at different models of either going out and providing vaccine um, or specifically setting aside doses that work with our service providers so they can get vaccinated. Um, and we're looking at, you know, the, the best logistics to do that. Gabe brings up a really important point, which is we mm -hmm. work with people who work with those people, mm -hmm. right? So not only with those living homeless, but with the seniors. So, for example, I think a month or two ago, uh, we had two clinics going on in Buckley at the same time. One was what the public heard about. It was a mass vaccination clinic at White River High School. Anyone could have signed up for it, sold out in 15 minutes. You know, we got a bunch of people through that. What the public didn't hear about was we worked with senior service providers. And in a city like Buckley in a rural area, they know who is who has trouble, right? And they know who these people are. So they did not expect these people to go online or even call in. They registered these people. They made sure there was transportation to get these people from their homes. And then we held a very quiet community-led um, event at the fire station. So, you know, we were using two strategies at once, but again, it was working with the community. And, and we've done this with multiple other organizations, and this is part of the Equity Action Network. We have, um, Gabe, I think it's over 50 organizations working with us in that. 
And so we work through them to get the word out, you know, in the way that's most effective for their community. Many of the organizations will actually register these people, you know, so this overcomes the issues not only about internet, but about language or, you know, visual or other disabilities. And then they get an appointment, they come in and they get vaccinated. So, so that way we can kind of provide the opportunity for those people to get the vaccine um, and, and kind of make it more equitable for them. Oh, that's good. That was actually one of my categories to ask about was that I've heard that there are sort of, um, I'll call them secret events that are uh, put on, were hosted by organizations like Tacoma Urban League, where it may not be publicly um, um, advertised, but you're really going to the community provider. So it sounds like that is a strategy that's working for you. Yeah, I, I'm not sure we figured out the best term for it. I think mm -hmm. secret sounds sinister. It does sound bad, yeah. It may be quiet, or I think the term we tend to use is community-led. That's very nice, you, you yes. Know, so very much as... Um, you know, Gabe said earlier, like, we believe in community participation, whether it's in planning and budgeting or in helping organize and get people to vaccination sites. Okay. Here's another one I've, yeah. I've heard of. Oh, Gabe, did you want to add to that? Yeah. And, well, I was just going to add, too, oh, is, is the, um, those experiencing homelessness. We do work really closely with our partners at Department of Health and other local health jurisdictions to continually learn best practices. So that's just something we've been doing throughout our response, too. As far as our, yeah, we call them community facilitated clinics. Um, and that's, again, really a way to build into those trusted relationships that we have in the community. And part of the reason why we have those as a main strategy is because of the access issue, because it's hard for people to access appointments online, because they move so fast. So we've found that working with our partner partners they're able to register their networks. They know who in their community needs access and they have those trusted relationships to walk them through the process. One of the things we're doing now is we actually have an RFP out to provide some funding to those community partners because we do know it's a lot of work to help organize their networks. We do know there's a lot of logistics involved with hosting those clinic sites and it's just one of our equity strategies to invest back into our community. So, you know, that's kind of a win-win scenario for us. Um, is providing vaccine in communities to communities that need it the most and then building capacity and funding into our local community organizations and partners. Well, that sounds really good. Well, let me ask you about this. So uh, another situation that we've heard of that's worked for some people is that when you have a, a large vaccine event, let's say at the Tacoma Dome, that that it's sort of a, a known that there will be leftover vaccines. And so there's a there's some standby capacity, mm -hmm. and uh, people have number one wondered, should I just go down? Should I just go to the mass vaccination event and say, hey, you know, I'm on standby in case you have any vaccines left over? Um, and if they do that, how can you know? Should they feel guilty that they're maybe taking a vaccine from a from someone who would be higher up on the line? So this is something we call the extra dose. So yeah, at every, every clinic, we know that there's going to be a um, amount of vaccine that we call extra dose. First of all, there's no vaccine that's wasted at any clinic. We've never had to dispose of a vaccine dose. Also, we still take into consideration equity. Um, we've been hearing a little bit more about people just trying to show up and get a, a you know, a vaccine. So 
let me just say that by far, most people are following their phase. They're doing a really good job of being phase eligible. They're being really respectful of making sure those that need vaccine are the first to get it. There's been cases where we do have extra vaccine at the end of a clinic, whether it's at a mass vax clinic or, but we have a process for that. Um, we have a standby list. Our first process is to vaccinate all of our volunteers. So volunteers or extra staff at the event that have not been vaccinated will get vaccine. Then we have a list that is people that were phase eligible that weren't maybe able to get an appointment that day. There's maybe some confusion or they, they weren't able to access appointments. And then we also do have a standby list of people that weren't able to get into appointments that we, we call down and we have them um, come down for a vaccine. Again, I, I think there may be, a, of course, we're vaccinating thousands of people. So there might be scenarios where someone shows up and there's confusion, they get a, the vaccine dose, but that is by far not the standard process. And we do not encourage that. Okay. So it sounds like if someone would like to try to maybe get a vaccine a little bit earlier than their phase or their tier, um, could they volunteer to help with the vaccines and, and be able to get one that way? Or is the advice just, sorry, guys, just wait your turn? Well, and again, we do equity with everything. So um, if they volunteer, they're actually phase eligible because then they're kind of more on the front lines of providing uh, health care. So they, it's not necessarily that they're not phase eligible, but then they become phase eligible because they have an essential role. Um, we are always taking volunteers. There's volunteer um, a form to become a volunteer on our website. We're especially interested in clinical volunteers and clinical volunteers that reflect our communities. So that's really important. Um, and it's not guaranteed that you will get a vaccine. We say you may. But if, you know, if you're interested in volunteering and you have a specialty, if you're bilingual, if you reflect the community, um, definitely, you know, let us know and we can connect you to a volunteer opportunity. Okay. And Dr. Chen, did you want to add anything to that? No, I think Gabe covered it really well. Okay. At some point, let's, uh, I'm assuming that the vaccines are just going to be open to everyone. Mm-hmm. And how does that work then? Can you just go to Rite Aid or Walgreens and get a vaccine like you do with a flu shot? Or will there still be sort of some structure placed around them? Oh, I'm glad you asked that because I think the visible thing we do are the mass vaccination sites, right? You you can go down to the Piafka Fairgrounds, whatever. You can see the six lanes of traffic. However, what you don't see is still the backbone of our distribution is with our healthcare partners. And, you know, during the H1N1 pandemic, for example, we did not do any mass vaccination. It was all done through our healthcare partners. And that was when we pioneered working with pharmacies. Pharmacies have become incredible partners in this. Not only the large pharmacies, but the small pharmacies, you know, the you know, one or two, you know, outlet pharmacies. So that will still be going on. And there are multiple strategies. We'll continue to do mass vaccination. We will also be, like, in this next phase, there are a lot of employer-based things we could do, right? I mean, obviously, you know, grocery workers, it makes Mm -hmm. sense to go to the grocery store and vaccinate them. Uh, We've been working with schools. Schools, kind of, there's a very quick transition there. So, you know, they've been kind of getting it whenever they can. But before that transition, and before we knew they were going to get bucked, 
bumped up in the priority list. We had been planning with all our 15 school districts and 40 private schools on how, you know, they came up with a plan that certain districts would vaccinate, you know, not all 15 certain would, and then they would also cover the private schools. So lots of different strategies, but we hope that at, at whatever point we, you know, people will be able to either go to their provider, go to a mass vaccination site, go to a pharmacy, there will be other community sites that we're already negotiating to do. So it, as many places as possible, um, but there'll be a lot more coming. Do you think, what's the time frame on that, do you think? Well, the big thing that's holding us back right now is vaccine supply, mm -hmm. right? So that's, and, and I remember earlier on people saying, well, why don't you do mass vaccinations? Like, well, you know, that doesn't really work for the doctors. <laughs> Tell them, leave your hospital, drive to the dome or something, mm -hmm. right? But there also is a supply issue, right? And, and now we still have some tightness in the supply. And so there, it's kind of a, a balance between supply and the phase we're in. Mm -hmm. And, and so, as I said, you know, if we're going to vaccinate grocery workers, it may not make sense for us to do more mass vaccination sites. It's it probably better if we do targeted sites on those. Okay. Yeah. But uh, coming, do you think, um, April and May? Well, you know, the president has promised that by May, we, you know, anyone that there's... Everyone should be eligible, and I think that comes with a caveat in that we are still seeing um, a reasonable amount of people who are concerned about the vaccine, mm. right? And e even among healthcare providers, there are some healthcare providers who have not gotten the vaccine yet for various reasons. Um, I think everyone's aware that certain racial ethnic groups have historically been really worried. Um, but one of the other things that's worrisome to me, too, several studies have come out that men are less likely to want to get the vaccine. They're also finding that those who live in rural areas and those who are identify as being politically conservative or Republican mm -hmm. are less likely. So those are going to be different strategies. But the idea there is if you were in one of the earlier phases, you can always get vaccinated at a later phase. Mm -hmm. and, and this way it helps smooth it out. We're not going to wait till 99% of a phase has gone vaccinated because we know people need time to process this. Um, and so we get to a part where we get what we think is a reasonable amount, half, 75%, whatever, and then we move on to the next phase, and, and those people can come in later and, and get vaccinated. Okay. Let me switch a little bit now because there's one more topic I wanted to cover while mm -hmm. I have you here, and that is um, rise, recent rise, but it's been continuous the last several years, the increase in hate crimes that mm -hmm. we're seeing. Uh, racially based, but also LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. um, how do you look at that through a health lens? Because it, I think hate is a health issue. You're absolutely right. Hate is a is um, health issue. Violence is a health issue, right? And then the systems that perpetuate hate and crime and violence and all that are public health issues as well. I think right now everyone's talking a lot about the anti-Asian hate um, that's been going on, the hate crimes. Um, obviously, recently in the news about um, these people who were shot in massage parlors, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I want to remind people that there is an organization that collects uh, reports of um, anti-Asian hate crimes. And physical violence is only like 10% of the complaints. More than two-thirds of the complaints are verbal. And if you are on social media or read um, you know, the regular media, 
you'll, you'll see a lot of people are reporting things like they're getting spit at, they're mm-hmm. being called names, you know, they're, they're being avoided, you know, people physically in public, like walking away from them. And, and you know, there has always been discrimination and anti-Asian uh, activity, but especially in the past few years with the way that the previous administration and elected officials talked about um, the origins of the coronavirus and things like that, it's only accelerated. And then in the context that we've also seen in the past few years, this kind of loss of inhibition about very polarized um, behavior and language is added to it. And I, but let, let's look at the historical context, right? I think this is something Tacoma really needs to embrace because of our role in perpetuating some of this in the past, right? I mean, I moved to the Seattle area in 1993. I had no idea until I came to this job in 2008 that in 1885, Tacoma kicked all those Chinese people out and burned their homes, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's kind of like the secret that right. even if you live in Seattle, you don't know it. And a lot of people in Tacoma don't know that. You know, I think just about everyone's probably been to the Piaut Fairgrounds. Most people don't realize the Piaut Fairgrounds during World War II was a staging area that when the government sent the Japanese people to concentration camps, some of them went straight, you know, I think from Tacoma, they went straight to the camps, but the people north of Tacoma were assembled at the Piaut Fairgrounds, mm-hmm. right? And most people have no clue that there's actually a little memorial at the Piaut Fairgrounds. I mean, you could walk right by it and not know it was there, okay? I mean, so we have this history, and of course there's the history of how the white people came and took the lands away and livelihood away from our tribal you know, the American Indians and the tribal the um, people who lived here, right? So we have this long history here. And I think um, Tacoma really needs to say, I mean, I think Tacoma did, right? And they created the Reconciliation Park. They had the march to reverse, you know, kind of that reversal of the, the march that occurred in 1885. Um, and people need to realize this this is a pervasive thing and, and um, like today we we had a, a staff meeting to give people space to uh, at, this at the health department to give people space to talk about this and and some you know staff members talked about this quite passionately about their own personal experiences and it doesn't help right that Asians are often seen as the model minority. Um, mm. that, that's just such a simplification. We know, for example, in Tacoma, we have a very large Cambodian population who, because of Pol Pot and the genocide, many of them were illiterate and you know, low income and you know, farmers. You know, kind of, they're not the highly educated people from Taiwan and right. China and Japan, whatever. Right. So people don't understand um, that well, that there's differences. And so, um, you know, this has been really difficult. It's not been on people's radar screens. Um, It has been in the Asian community, Mm -hmm. okay? No question, it's been on the radar screen for people in the Asian community. It, you know, it's unfortunate it has taken some of the high profile. I mean, the shooting's the highest profile one, but Mm -hmm. I think uh, recently people have seen publicized events in San Francisco, New York, where elderly people have been assaulted, mm-hmm. right? I mean, so, 
it, it's been going on for a long time. It's just that now um, we're seeing the more obvious um, manifestations of it. Mm-hmm. Can you can you find a way to fold this into your equity lens in your public health context? I know you mentioned that racism is a health issue. Mm-hmm. Um, can hate crimes also fit under that? Is there are there some things that um, the health department can maybe help facilitate or recommend to help get out these problems? Yeah, I, I think, remember, um, I, I said we talk about social, economic, and environmental conditions, mm-hmm. right, and, and factors. And race is a social factor. But we also have to realize, for example, right, the 1885 expulsion of the Chinese was related, well, first of all, you know, just as we have now, it's like they did have enough labor to build the railroads, right? And we don't have enough labor to pick the vegetables and the produce in, in eastern Washington, so we import laborers. And, and then, you know, they had the Chinese Exclusion Act, right? And, and then when, after the railroad was completed, it's, they went into kind of a little recession. Yeah. And who do you blame, right? You blame the outsiders, mm-hmm. right? So the Chinese were blamed. And, and I think a lot of times there's blame. So... I, I was in college at University of Michigan, um, late 70s, early 80s. Well, remember there was oil embargo. The Detroit motor industry went to pot, right? Because the Japanese were like building cars that were fuel mm-hmm. efficient and, and actually worked and everything fitted together. And and I can remember the mayor of Detroit, Coleman Young, who's black, just, you know, railing against the the Japanese and by extension Asians, right? Mm -hmm. And most people are not aware, in 1982, uh, Vincent Chen was basically beaten up by these white auto workers because they thought he was Japanese, right? right? And so what the mayor said, I'm sure, you know, had some impact on on these auto workers. But it's that, you know, the... It's poverty, it's lack of education, it is economic challenges um, on top of everything else, our biases, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember growing up, too, that, you know, before I came to the States, I mean, people in Asia don't know what to make of black Americans, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's not just white people not knowing what to do with black people. It's like people in Asia at that time didn't know what to do with black people, you know? And so there was racism, but I mean, there's even racism among Asian people about Chinese people and Korean people and Japanese people, you know, whatever, and Southeast Asian people, right? So that's natural for there to be differences. It's natural for people to try to differentiate themselves from others. But what, what becomes toxic is when, they take that to a point where it, it can become harmful and even worse when either it becomes built into the system, right? I mean, here we talk about redlining and things mm-hmm. like that, um, or politicians use it to their advantage for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. They're looking at some kind of short-term gain. They, they need some votes. They, they want to blame you know, a, a policy problem on someone else so they don't get blamed, right? So then that's where it gets really difficult. And and that's where we need different approaches to it. And um, that's where um, we feel that a lot of the things that we're doing, like with our um, our racism response, looking at systems and structures and environments um, can help with that, Mm -hmm. right? Because we, I I mean, I, I tell my staff, it's kind of like smoking, right? 
if you approach any smoker on the corner, street corner, they'll tell you smoking's bad, which right. tells your educational efforts have worked, but they're still smoking. So how do we change their behaviors? So we need to do other strategies. We can change the environment. We can change the social expectations, right? Um, there are a lot of other things we can do to move that behavior without people necessarily, you, you know, kind of saying, yay, I, I want to quit smoking today, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there, there, there are a lot of ways we can move that. Mm -hmm. Gabe, did you have any thoughts you wanted to share on that? Yeah, I think that the patterns that we see in, in racism and specifically institutional racism, so we're, we're, we see the, the symptom play out in violence, but this is a system issue, just like equity is a system issue. So these were built upon systems. So one of our roles is to unpack these systems. Like at every point of the, you know, every point, where is racism acting? Where can we help identify it? And the work is not only on those experiencing the violence, it's, you know, for all of us to look at, you know, just like equity is essential for, you know, reaching community's health, we're not going to get to a place of healing unless we can all be part of looking at where, you know, racism is impacting our daily lives. So for me, it's, it's this a really important message of still looking at systems and, you know, really seeing how systems are creating and perpetualizing racism and violence. And then looking at the same patterns of turning to communities, you know, communities that experience most violence are also the communities that are most resilient, that this isn't new to them. They've been dealing with this for a long time, like Dr. Chen mentioned, they have the solutions. We need to center them in our COVID recovery and really um, build into how, you know, this pandemic created a, it was very hard for lots of people and it's still hard, but it also created this opportunity for us to kind of reset the way we think about our big systems. So I really hope that we can all take opportunity for that. And specifically at the health department, we think about that all the time. So how do we use this pandemic to really look at the best and the worst of what's come out of it and, and look towards our recovery based on those systems and those social, economic, environmental systems and connecting those long-term solutions to our immediate, you know, re recovery and response. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. We're just about out of time, and that was the closing question I wanted to ask each of you. What's your hope for what comes out of this process, let's say, by next September and thereafter? What one change, it could be even a small, tiny thing, would you hope we might see a little bit more of? Dr. Chen, what do you want to see something of coming out of this? I, I like your question because um, Victor, who is our health equity coordinator the other day, was saying to me, it's like, you know, everyone talks about when are we going back to normal? Yeah, no. And the normal wasn't good. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of racism. There was mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, disparities. So we won't go back to something better. And, and I hope that, you know, um, well, first of all, I mean, public health, people are much more aware of what we do now. Right, and they don't oh, yeah. understand everything we do, but at least we're on their radar screen. So I think that's been really helpful, but it's also been um, really helpful to be able to work with a lot of different partners, who you know, for whatever reason, um, you know. But we're, we're hoping that they're finding that it has been good for them to work with us, and and, and I think that you know there have been things that w there's been broad agreement on that we can build on. Right, I mean, you know, recovery. Uh, funds to help people, right? And um, 
I don't think, I, I mean, sure, there's a kind of bickering about how much and who gets it, but the concept that people need income and, and when people are suffering because they don't have a job for whatever reason, in this case, it's the pandemic, that we can lift them out of poverty and not only helps them, but it helps the economy. I mean, it's a win-win for everyone. It's a win for businesses, win for individuals, it's a win for government. So I hope that, you know, that, that um, willingness to look at all these different factors and their impact on health and how we can, you know, creatively fund those things will be a conversation we will continue to have so we don't slide back into the way we were. Mm-hmm. And Gabe, how about you? What's a, a positive you hope to see? Yeah, um, so this this is kind of a personal response, but what brought me to the, the equity work that I do now was based on gender inequities. And the pandemic has provided, you know, opportunities to be part of the workforce in ways that were not accessible to me in the past. And, you know, I'm super grateful. Like I, I had a pandemic baby. I had a baby in April. And, you know, even being able to have a podcast with you from my house. And, and it's really, for me, centered a lot of women and mothers and, you know, small business owners. I'm also a small business owner that maybe didn't have access in the same way. And I really hope that that stays. You know, I hope we really think about who's been leaving the workforce, who's most impacted by inequities, and really rethink our work culture, our economy, building it out more accessible, more equitable. Um, And I also think there's a huge opportunity in the economics piece. We know from our community, our work with Equity Action Network, that economics paired with housing and behavioral health are, you know, three of the most important issues to our community. I think there's a big opportunity to use our local businesses, our local vendors, our local assets. That's something that is unique to Pierce County. Um, I have seen way more opportunities for small businesses just in the last year, more access to funding, more access to you know grants and contracts. And I just really hope that continues and intensifies. You know, like Dr. Chen mentioned, that to me is a win-win. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, anything before we close up today, Dr. Chen, do you have anything further that you didn't get a chance to talk about? Um, nothing that I can think of, but thank you so much for having us um, with you today. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thank you mm-hmm. both. Um, thank you. If you have thoughts on this podcast or you have ideas for future episodes, you can get a hold of me by email, uh, truetacoma at gmail.com or on Twitter at true underscore Tacoma. Thanks for listening. Did you know Channel 253 is member-supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com membership and join. Thank you. Crossing Division is part of the Channel 253 podcast network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Citizen Tacoma, What Say You, and Gimme the Mic. This is Channel 253.